This, this is, is Yawa Radio. A warm welcome to the Yawa Radio podcast. The Yawa Radio podcast is an opportunity again to listen to one of our inspirational, thought-provoking interviews that we have brought to the listeners of Yawa Radio. Yawa Radio is online 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We are your well-being and happiness radio station, bringing the feel-good feeling to every single day of the week. Check us out at yawaradio.co.uk. Now sit back and enjoy this podcast from the Yawa Radio team. Welcome to Jordan Space. Every fortnight, you can join me, your host, Steve Phillip, alongside Danielle and Paul from the Jordan Legacy team, together with some very special guests for an hour of conversation, music, and above all, hope. Welcome to Jordan Space. This show does discuss themes of suicide, and we'd encourage you to take care of yourself by stepping away from the show at any point, should you find the content triggering or uncomfortable to listen to. For support, please visit our website, thejordanlegacy.com, and our help menu options. Welcome to show 34 of Jordan Space. I'm your host, Steve Phillip, and I'm joined by my regular co-hosts, Danny and Paul. Welcome both. Uh, Shortly, we're going to be speaking with our guest, mental health advocate and founder of Happy Sapiens, David Eakins. Now, in 2017, David tragically experienced the loss of his father to a massive brain hemorrhage. Five months later, David's wife died during childbirth, but there is more to that particular event that we'll be discussing with him shortly. Paul, before we speak with David, uh, on our last show, we interviewed Dr. Sandy Oni, and we heard the remarkable story of him assembling all the religious leaders in Indonesia, a country with the fourth largest population in the world and many different religions, all considering suicide a sin. And how he helped get suicide prevention enshrined in law, making Indonesia the first low or middle income country to actually do this. It seems appropriate, therefore, that for today's introduction to the show, we take a look outside of the UK to discuss the situation with suicide globally. What is it useful for us to understand about suicide throughout the world and perhaps some countries and how they differ in terms of the number of deaths per head of population? I think it's really important that we look uh, globally at this situation and um, not just suicide and suicide prevention. I mean, look at things like COVID, you know, inquiry that's going on there. Uh, we didn't really learn from what was happening elsewhere around the world and uh, struggled and, and, and sadly many people died because we weren't learning lessons from what was happening elsewhere. Suicide prevention is a global activity. There's there's global infrastructure. There's the International Association for Suicide Prevention, which was established in 1960. And we have the World Health Organization and other global organizations involved. And so we know a lot through those organizations about the global picture. We know that 700,000 people die by suicide around the world each year. There's one suicide every 45 seconds somewhere in the world. So we can go and look at the problem and understand the problem. And we can also look for solutions, look at what people are doing to get those suicide numbers down. And it's very instructive when you do look at the global picture, because, for example, the World Health Organization actually resisted looking at suicide for many, many years. And we had to lobby and lobby and lobby. And eventually, in 2014, uh, they decided they would actually look at suicide. They said previously they hadn't looked at suicide because their remit was to look at disease, diseases and illnesses. And suicide wasn't a disease or an illness. 
so they hadn't previously looked at it, but they did and produced an excellent report. And now they're part of the solution <laughs> and no longer part of the problem. So, yeah, we can learn a lot from looking at other countries. And there's so many different angles to this, including every country's different. Some countries have cultural traditions like Japan, where people might think it's an honourable thing to take their own life. Or they might have been they might have shamed their family and think it's the honourable thing to do to kill themselves. Other countries have no cultural tradition whatsoever of suicide. It's a modern problem. Keeping on this theme of what's happening more globally, Paul, usually whenever we talk about the language around suicide, the term commit, suicide comes up, and therefore the suggestion that the individual has committed a crime of some kind. Of course, suicide was decriminalised in the UK in 1961, but this isn't the case everywhere in the world. No, uh, absolutely not, and, and sadly it isn't. We actually still have... 25 countries around the world where suicide is a crime uh, and a further 27 countries where uh, the legal position is unclear. So that's 52 countries around the world where people are not free of that stigma and uh, that additional pain. And in fact, that's a total of 1.2 billion people around the world, 1.2 billion people living in countries where, it is not, where, where suicide is either illegal or the legal status is not clear. And so it's something that we all have to be mindful of if we want to get the global numbers of suicides down. That's one of the things we need to do, decriminalise. And Lifeline International was set up partly with that purpose, specific purpose of decriminalising. And there is a lot of activity going on around the world to achieve that. We had two successes last year with Ghana and Malaysia decriminalising. And one of the things that people in the UK might want to just think about because they might think what's this got to do with me <laughs> some of those laws exist because of us they exist because of the british they didn't actually have any laws criminalizing suicide until the british imperialists arrived and created them and we removed ours in 1961 here but we've left others around the world so we have a duty to try and go out there and remove these laws that we created in the first place and there's other countries, huge countries with huge populations like Nigeria. So we're going to talk about Indonesia later, another huge population, a success there. But it is still a criminal offence in Nigeria. So, again, lots of people doing great work to try and change that situation. Danny, what are your thoughts on some of what we've just been talking about? As we've been saying, suicide and attempted suicide is still considered illegal in many countries worldwide. And as Paul was saying, you know, this adds to the distress caused by those who attempt, it adds to stigma, and ultimately it does hinder people getting the help that they need. As you also mentioned earlier, in this country, Parliament decriminalised suicide in 1961, but it's actually only been in recent years that a ban was lifted by the Church of England for full Christian funerals for people who take their own lives. And that ban came from a traditional view, a traditional attitude that, that suicide was a sin. Uh, fortunately, public attitudes have changed and understanding of mental health has developed. But it's clear that worldwide decriminalisation of suicide and views of suicide still have some way to go. OK, many thanks both. We're going to take a short break now. And when we return, we'll be speaking with our guest, David Eakins. Before then, let's listen to one of the tracks that David's chosen today, which is Norman Greenbaum and Spirit in the Sky. This, this is Yawa Radio. Radio. Welcome back. This week, we're delighted to welcome to Jordan Space, David Eakins. Uh, welcome to the show, David. It's uh, great to have you join us. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, it's a real pleasure to be here. 
No, not at, not at all. And look, before we chat about the details of your journey, which has led to you now sharing your story about mental health to help others, could you tell us briefly about yourself, your career? Understand that uh, you've had a career that's predominantly been in uh, digital advertising. I've had a 25-year career in advertising. And I, funny enough, I actually went back to my old university to give a lecture on mental health. And it was it was really good to be back. But uh, part of my opening chat with them was that when I entered the advertising industry, I remember my dad saying, be careful, son, it's a young man's game. And I remember my tutor saying, be careful, it's a brutal industry that takes no prisoners. And what was really interesting about that was that people recognised it's a very stressful industry to work in. Very fun, you know, there's lots of glitz, glamour, photo shoots, flying off to exotic locations um, and that that's the the nice shiny reward for for everything but the the stress that was warned about no one actually gave us any tools or education or guidance to know how to safely navigate a career in a stressful industry and we'd be up you know sort of three four five in the morning sometimes doing the work like two hours sleep expected to be back at nine o'clock at the desk the next day and soldiering through which is great experience to go through you know it's a real galvanizes the team and you almost wear it as a badge of honor but in retrospect looking back now the the amount of stress that that puts your body and mind through is really understated and I think this is where a lot of the the burnout happens within our industry is that they expect so much from you, but they don't necessarily give you the tools to know how to handle stress. That's a really good point. And here you are going along, successful career in advertising, exciting, but but stressful, as you say. But your life is about to become even more stressful, really. And, and if we can wind the clock back a little over six years ago, you received some news that your father was really seriously unwell and very sadly your dad at just 64 years old suffered a massive brain hemorrhage. Are you happy mm. to talk a little bit about that that story, kind of what happened and, and how that impacted you? Yeah, sure. I mean, I've I got to start off by saying I'm a very happy individual. I felt bulletproof. I'm a very optimistic sort of guy. But then you get a curveball like that. And the doctors said, look, he's had a brain hemorrhage. We've done a scan of his brain and the uh, whole right hand side of his brain hemisphere is just flooded with blood so there is there's no going back we just sat by his bedside for the next 12 hours he was on life support so that he was waiting for his two brothers to come over to say the last few words with him uh, and then we turned the machine off and two hours later he left us which was you know, incredibly painful and, and and sad it was it was all in shock at how sudden it happened and when something like that happens, it really just, it, it just knocks you. I can't, I can't explain how much it, it it knocks you. I wasn't expecting it, but he did have a heart bypass a few years before. So I made sure that every single time I saw him, I gave him a hug, told him I loved him. You said you were a very happy-go-lucky person, and then obviously this happened. But do you think something was already bubbling there with you? you know, with your mental health, when you talked about how stressful your job and everything was, do you think there was something there that maybe you weren't even aware of that was already? Yeah, absolutely. When you're living with stress, your threshold to manage stress gets shorter. When you go through something traumatic like that, your body instantly gets put into this 
sort of you know feels like there's a threat <laughs> life is the threat it definitely made it harder to process uh, a traumatic event like that mm. okay well, Tim, you were talking about the industry you're working in and, and then something like that happens where your dad's not well um was it was there pressure on you work pressure on you were you able to break off completely from work at that point and be with your dad I was leaving a job to go into another role. And so it accelerated my exit from that company. And there was no necessary support there because I I was leaving. And when you go into a new job, you want to be positive. You want to be, you know, a positive influence within the agency. You don't want to just turn up and say, really sorry, guys, my dad's just started, you know. So I I kept it a secret from everyone. And And I think that was an error on my part because I wasn't honest with with them and if it had been they might have been able to help me manage my stress if you're there at work and you're not opening up about your experiences with your dad and you're worrying about what you might say and you're working long hours it doesn't sound like the best environment for creative advertising does it yeah do you know I, I think long and hard about this going we are such a industry of innovation problem solving, analyzing human behavior. You know, we're absolute experts at that. But when it comes to well-being, mental health within the workplace, it's almost like everyone gets stuck. David, during the time, obviously you're picking up the pieces of your life again following your father's death. You're now in a situation where you've got some positive news to look forward to. Your wife is pregnant. You're both looking forward to the birth of your now six-year-old son. And as we're recording the show today, we're going to say happy birthday to Sebastian because it is his birth today, is. Yeah, birthday, which is fantastic. But yeah, coming back to the story, just five months after your father's death, tragedy really struck again at that moment. Could you explain to our listeners what happened at that point? Yeah, so, you know, Sebastian's birthday is a a bittersweet day because while I'm still emotionally processing the the passing of my father, I was fortunate enough to have told him that, you know, he was going to be a granddad for the first time. So we were all very excited about that. When we went for a planned caesarean, when my wife was administered a a spinal block, um, just disaster happened. You know, she said, it's gone wrong. I was holding her hand and she just flatlined cardiac arrest. So a big red button was pressed. I was pushed out the door. 12 person resus team came sprinting down the corridor. I didn't know what was going on. I, I thought, oh God, this, this doesn't look good at all, but this must be standard procedure. You know, it's, it looks like an oil, well-oiled machine. And while I was in a waiting room on my own for half an hour, I thought they're taking the time. The nurse came in and said, oh, yeah, it's, it's a boy. <laughs> I went, fantastic news. What about my wife? And they said, we can't get her back. Uh, we'll try for another half an hour. But if we can't, I think we'll we'll give up at that point. And just left me in the room again on my own. And I watched every minute that clock count down and got to 52 minutes. And they came in and said, God, look, we, it's a really bad case. We've never had anything like this before. We're trying to work out what's going on, but we've got a glimmer of a heartbeat, not enough to sustain her life. Both her lungs have collapsed and so there's no way of getting oxygen to her brain. 
we'll have to try and get an ECMO machine, which is bypasses the heart and lungs down from St. Thomas to Brighton. And that was the start of a very long journey of trying to work out what's happening and trying to save Becky's life. I, I can only imagine what it must have been like for you trying to come to terms with what was was happening. The positive news, of course, is that Becky does go on to recover. Yeah, so she's had two or three medical papers written about her because this type of stuff simply doesn't happen. They thought she might be allergic to the anaesthetic. But the lead-in thought is that it was broken heart syndrome, which is where the pressure on her heart is so much that it just fails. In interviews since that, you know, she's terrified of hospitals, terrified of childbirth and terrified of needles. And her heart was beating, not just for her, but also for the baby as well. They gave her a 10% surviving. And they said, even if she does somehow pull through that she's most likely going to be brain dead. So it was looking bleak, but my wife is a fighter. She's one of the most incredible persons I've ever met, which is exactly why I married her. And she fought a very good fight. Not only came back to us seven days later, she's still the Becky I knew and love. And she essentially made a full recovery. So there's a, <laughs> a happy end to that story. But she couldn't get discharged before the psychiatrist interviewed her and myself separately. I don't know what they said to her, but they gave me some very good warning when I picked up my wife and son and brought them home. Of course, this did have a huge impact on yourself. And three months later, everything that, that occurred really impacted your own mental health. You ended up losing your job. And Coming back to a question Paul asked earlier on, were you getting any kind of support at all from your new employer at this time? What happened is the psychiatrist said to me, look, you're going through incredible pressure at the moment, but as a new father and having a wife back, you'll rise to the occasion and you will hold it together for the sake of your family. But something might happen completely unrelated in six months' time that might make you have a wobble here's my card put it in your wallet if you do find yourself struggling here's my number call it she was fantastic in arming me with safeguarding procedures but when i went back to work after extended leave on compassionate ground there they had no procedures or policies in place it was um it was very disappointing uh to say the least they had kept what happened to me a secret from everyone in the company for some reason. And that made it really difficult to transition back into the workplace because I'd been off for a very long time. No one knew why. So they thought I'd gone traveling or a sabbatical or, and everyone's asking me where my tan was, which felt completely insensitive, but they, they weren't to blame. <clears throat> and the, someone who I was very friend, friendly with there, she, she, knew what I'd gone through and she was trying to help me and said, oh, it must be really traumatic, but it's done now. Walk under the bridge, time to move on. And I was just flabbergasted. So where, where I was looking forward to coming back to work to get a bit of normality back into my life, all of a sudden I found myself struggling even more because it, the agency felt alien to me. It wasn't a place of security or comfort or familiarity. It felt that some of the things that are happening and being said to me were insensitive, especially when my creative director 
pulled me and uh, a couple of guys into a meeting just to say, God, what, you know, it's so stressful what happened you've gone through. Just tell us, a, tell us a bit more. And I told him exactly what happened, you know, sort of put everything on the line. And his immediate reaction was, oh, yeah, I, when I was younger, I had a regular heartbeat and someone stopped my heart. They gave me a little jolt and that fixed it and started talking about himself and his minor thing that he'd gone through. And I thought, gee, I, I, I just, my, my jaw hit, hit the desk, how insensitive that was. And from that moment on, I just felt isolated. I think they did everything you could do wrong. They they did. David, it does sound extraordinary on the one hand, what you went through there. On the other hand, maybe not surprising to some people at all. And I come back to this business of it being a creative advertising agency. When I, when I first started working in advertising, everybody talked about how creative they were and how they tackled these complex briefs. And so it almost sounds like you need to write a brief for... How could you, you know, best deal with a, a situation where somebody's suffering from trauma and experiencing this kind of thing? I was also struck by what you said at the hospital as well, when this was happening. All of the emergency team, you know, 12 people, the full crew going, because it's all about saving mm. lives physically and your wife's in a crisis situation. And you said you're in a room on your own. Mm. So it's clearly not just advertising agencies that have a problem recognizing these things it sounds like the it's another example of the nhs maybe not recognizing what you might have been going through at that time because you you also said that you were told she might have you know up to 30 minutes of resuscitation time and then to give up and then they're mm. talking about bringing down equipment from st thomas's to brighton which sounds like more than half an hour after every minute that went by it just you felt more and more daunting about the situation but I've got to say that in the interviews on Becky's exit from the hospital, they looked at the procedures that happened uh, to find out what went well and what didn't go so well. And they did say that nurse who came in and spoke to me in that way and said those things was not professional, didn't meet the standards required to ensure my <laughs> safety to my my stress levels and mental health because some of the things they said wasn't correct. So they they went back and um, addressed that with the, that particular employee. David, thank you for sharing your story with us so far. We're going to take a, a short break to play some more music now. When we return, I'd, I'd like to talk with you about what happened next and really how your own life was saved by a call. Before then, you've chosen a number of songs that we've been playing during the show today. We're going to play another one now, which is Tears in Heaven, by Eric Clapton. Why this song particularly? Yeah, so my dad, he battled alcoholism, ended up going into rehab when I was uh, eight years old. Uh, <clears throat> didn't see him for six weeks. And when he came out of rehab, he was uh, a much happier person to, to live with. And while he was in rehab, he was uh, in there with Eric Clapton. And so he got to know him quite well. And so we ended up listening to a lot of Eric Clapton together. And so whenever I do listen to a lot of his songs, it does remind me of my dad. And it's a, a great way to feel connected with my dad. And so I particularly love listening to this track, especially, you know, now my dad's in heaven. It's just, I feel like we have a little moment together whenever this is played. 
Oh, that's a wonderful story. And, and not the story I was expecting to hear, actually. What a nice connection to have with Eric Clapton. Let's take a break now, and we're going to listen to Tears in Heaven by Eric Clapton, and we'll be right back after this. This, this is, is Yawa Radio. Radio. Welcome back. We're talking with mental health researcher David Eakins. David, before the break, we, we heard about the tragic loss of your father to a brain hemorrhage and how just a few months later you almost lost your wife during the birth of your son. The mental toll these experiences took on you ultimately led to you effectively, I suppose, being managed out of your job, really. It sounds like this all got to a point where it all just became too much and one day you found yourself climbing the railings of a bridge. Mm. Would you like to tell us what happened next? I'd gone through so much trauma in my personal life. Going back to work felt like a, a safe space, a bit of normality, and that couldn't have been further from the truth. And I was struggling I did flag it with a management team and they made the decision to manage me out of the job, which was the straw that broke my mental health. You know, I'd experienced losing my father, I'd experienced losing my wife, and now I was experiencing losing my job, which I also held dear to me. And the reason why I left, lost my job is because I opened up my mouth about how I was struggling. And so I felt as if I brought that upon myself because I was honest about my feelings and emotions. And consequently, I was being managed out and it took a few weeks to, for, for that to happen. I knew what was happening and it just absolutely crippled me. I, th I felt that I shouldn't talk to anyone about how I was feeling. I lost my job consequently because of how I spoke about it. And I fell into depression really hard. But because I'd got my wife and son back from hospital and everyone's really happy about that, I felt as if I had to portray the happy, positive person and it got harder and harder each day to do. I tried telling people that I was struggling, you know, friends, but it felt as if they didn't know what to say or it made them feel slightly uncomfortable. I didn't know who to talk to or what even to say. So to numb the pain, I ended up just drinking. And that, of course, that's not good for your mental health or your thought process. And you don't handle situations well when you are uh, intoxicated. But that was my only way that I could handle numbing the pain. And the deeper I fell into, into depression and the longer I was silent, the more I hated life because life is a gift. And I felt I was failing miserably at it. You know, everyone has to overcome their own life hurdles. I didn't feel strong enough to go over mine. I didn't want to be perceived as weak or unhinged or unable to look after my family. So I took all of that on my shoulders and it weighed me down and it was getting too much. And I, I began hating waking up each morning. I'd open my eyes thinking, wish I, I wish I didn't wake up, you know, and it, it really got to that bad and yeah, I was, I was going into London for the, you know, I think it was my last week in London. And when I was walking into work, a bus went past my foot involuntary out of nowhere, took one step towards that bus. And it absolutely shocked me. I thought, what the hell is my body doing? You know, why would it do that? And then I thought, oh, you know, is that going to happen again? By the time... I got to the, the door of the office, no buses had come. 
So I couldn't wait to finish work to get out to walk past the bus to see if it would happen again. So when I left work, it happened again. I thought, Christ, I'm, what's, what's my body trying to tell me? And then I started thinking, well, that bus was going too slow. It wouldn't have finished me off. So then I, it became a game, to involuntary game, to look at buses going past, going, would, would that be the one that could polish me off? And then because I was suffering from PTSD and depression, I had been having blackouts. I'd be somewhere, be aware that I was somewhere and have no clue how I got there. And then I just came around on a bridge, staring at all the trains slowly rolling below me. I thought, what the hell am I doing here? I don't even remember how I got here, how long it's taken me to get from where to here. And this is a rush hour in the in the evening and i saw a high-speed train coming in the distance heard a voice say that's the one and i just felt myself climbing the railings and it just felt normal you know it just felt as if that was the answer to end all the pain i was feeling you know there was a, a crowd gathering around me and none, none of what they were saying made any difference but it was <laughs> There was that realization is just before I jumped was I'm going to make my wife a widow and my newborn fatherless. And then I heard the psychiatrist voice from the hospital say, you might have a wobble before you do anything silly, call this number. So I climbed back over the railings, told everyone to give me space. And I was, I felt so embarrassed. I was just walking off, put my wallet out, checked to see if I had a number. I did. Luckily, I thought there's no way she's going to pick up. She's, you know, one of the top psychiatrists in the frantically called her number. She picked up. I said, you probably don't remember me. My name's David. And she said, oh, yeah, I remember you. Where are you and what are you about to do? So she knew, she knew that I was probably going to be experiencing PTSD and I was highly likely to have a wobble. And I did. And thankfully, she picked up. And I honestly don't think I would have been here if I didn't have that card in my wallet. And if she hadn't picked up, I don't think, you know, it's just luck that she did. Wow, that is hugely powerful. David, thank you um, yeah. for sharing that. Had you already been diagnosed with PTSD then at that point, David? Or are you just assuming that that's what, what it was and you were told afterwards that that's what you'd been experiencing? Yeah, I hadn't been diagnosed by that point. It was only after working with the psychiatrist that, you know, she took me on that she said, yeah, you're clearly suffering PTSD and depression. David, yeah, I really appreciate you giving us those insights. I mean, it's going to be challenging for a lot of people who we've heard other stories about people where it's been a very apparently rational kind of act and, and a plan and a rehearsal and all the rest of it. And you're talking about blackouts and just appearing there on the bridge. So it's going to be challenging for people. It's great that you got that contact from the psychiatrist. I and mean, that's just such a beautiful story in that moment. And, and that person knowing exactly what you were going through at that point. So I just wanted to ask one question about loss experiences, which is a particular area of mine. And I spoke about this at the Jordan Legacy's Hope for Life conference last year. You talked about, you know, obviously experience of loss with your dad, but you also talk about loss of job. You know, there are these other types of loss experience, the loss of job, the loss of 
your identity that's wrapped up in your job and things like that. Is that something you were conscious of or you become conscious of later, the other lost experiences you were having? Yeah, it, I, I just felt I was losing everything that I held dear in my career. You know, I'd worked really hard to get that job and, you know, there's a downturn in the economy. Jobs were harder to find and I'd had so much of my identity wrapped up in my job that if I couldn't be an art director, I was losing my identity as well. You know, I was losing everything. So it just felt like chaos. I felt like I was living in a tornado where I had tinnitus as well, just because of the stress. I had constant ringing. And I felt there was a wall of blur in between me and the real world. And I wasn't connected. And that, that was the disconnection from everything. I wasn't myself. Yeah, it was hard to deal with. David, it'd be... be really easy to talk about the next five years of your life because there was a journey that you had to 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 go on of course but uh, in the time we've got available today i think it's really important maybe we bring things up to the present day and, and talk about your identity now because everything that you've been through including the the journey to recovery has led to a very new chapter in in your life now where you're now openly sharing your experiences as you're doing with us today on, on jordan's space but now starting to take that back to employees in the workplace about how they can cope with stress and build resilience and manage their own mental health can you tell us a bit about this this new chapter and yeah what's happening for you now so after that moment of crisis, I felt so ashamed about what I'd almost done. I kept it secret for five long years and that didn't help my mental health at all. And I got so fed up with feeling fed up and hiding this part like a dirty little secret. I needed to do something new and different to pull myself out of this pit. And so I began talking to people and being honest with myself and other people. And as soon as I did and the weight that came off my shoulders was just profound. And that started my journey of honesty, courage, and building human connection. One, one of the things that, that really helped me was going on to a talk club, online talk club, where safe space for men to go on and chat and support each other. And as soon as I found that, that projected my life onto a much happier path and it was so addictive that feeling of positivity that's what I've been pursuing for the last year so much so that I'm now working with Talk Club I'm going back to universities to help educate the next generation of talent to better arm them about the stresses that they might find in their professional life and also have ambitions to go back into advertising agencies to help safeguard the entire industry, one agency at a time. And I want to safeguard the next generation, one university at a time. Uh, more needs to be done to protect people. Um, I feel as if the best people to spread courage and resilience are the people who had to find it along a path to a happier place. I feel that I'm very qualified for that role. Uh, I'm passionate about it. I'm passionate about uh, protecting my friends and colleagues that in the industry. And so that, that's what my new chapter of life is about, is to work within the mental health space and to go back into the advertising industry to be a force for good. If there's 
people within the advertising industry listening to the show today or universities as well. I understand you set up your own consultancy called Happy Sapien. How can people best get in touch with you? Yes. So, well, I haven't officially launched yet. So we're, we're still building the, the brand and the website. Initially, it was called Fear Killer, you know, because fear almost killed my wife. Fear almost killed me. Um, and we are surrounded by fear in this modern world. And I felt it was, I was on a crusade to kill people's fear. Got into a bit of trouble with firewalls with the word killer in it. So I had to rebrand to be Happy Sapien. And actually it's a more positive name. So you can still contact me on david at fearkiller.co.uk. Feel free to contact me to chat further and see how I can help work with your agency or university. So much to take away from our conversation today. Really a lot of messages of hope there as well. And we always like to ask our guests at the end of every show uh, to share a message of hope with those that are listening. And I just wonder what your message would be to anyone who's who's struggling themselves in, in whatever the situation. Maybe it's loss, as Paul said. Um, maybe it's experiences of PTSD or trauma. Uh, what would your message be and who would that be for? Uh, I could honestly do another hour just on this this section here but if if i was to sum it up my advice to anyone who is struggling and i have been there and it's a very lonely place so my message is you are not alone there is help out there so don't struggle on your own talking helps more than you think and you need to find the courage to face your fears we all need to learn how to build mental resilience and learn how to manage your own mental health and when we do take those steps, the storm will pass. So a wonderful message, David. Thank you. Now we're going to play a couple of more tracks uh, that you've chosen today. But the next one I'd just like to chat with you about is one by Elderbrook. Uh, it's titled Tied to You. Can you tell us a little bit about this song? Yeah, it's my latest favourite track. It's a really uplifting one, which is good for the soul. But it, Tied to You is also a reminder that you know, the power and importance of human connection can't be said you know, enough how important that is for our mental health and our well-being. So we just need to remember that it's being tied to your loved ones and knowing how to help, uh, ask for help is incredibly important. David, just want to thank you for joining us today on Jordan Space. It's been a real, real pleasure to, to talk with you. And thanks so much for sharing your story. We're going to uh, take a short break now. When we come back, Danny, Paul and I will do a quick roundup of today's show. But for now, let's listen to Elderbrook and Tied to You. How would you like to relax at the end of the day? Why not join me for Late Night Yower every night of the week between 10 and midnight playing you the best in late night music. Join me, Late Night Yawa, right here on Yawa Radio, 10 till midnight, every day of the week. This, this is, is Yawa, Yawa Radio. Radio. Welcome back, everyone. And another incredibly inspiring story, difficult one to listen to at times from David. Danny, what were some of the things you've taken away from our conversation with David today? Yeah, I think one of the main things I took away from it is that just how shocking it was that someone in David's position everything that he'd been through with his wife and his dad that he didn't get the support work that he needed and it was actually the opposite and he ultimately lost his job because he was struggling with his mental health and then the knock-on effect that that had on him where he didn't want to open up again and he kept silent he didn't get the help he needed and then 
obviously got to the point where he was going to take his own life. So I do think his story really emphasises the importance of, of not just people getting the support that they need before it reaches crisis point, but also how important it is that workplaces in particular are equipped to support people who are struggling with their mental health or have been through major traumas or life experiences that might cause them to be unproductive at work or that might affect their well-being. And, and finally, I just think David's story really reflects how helpful it can be both for ourselves and others to share our experiences. I think you're right, Danny. There's so much to take away. I'm hoping that employers listening to the show are really going to take note of some of the lessons from this conversation today. Thanks, Danny. And Paul, how, how about you? So much to take away from our conversation with David. Yeah, well, I kind of, <clears throat> you know, broke off from my day job in terms of our Zero Suicide Society Transformation Programme to listen to David and absolutely fascinating. And of course, I then related back to the work that we do every day, every week, every month. You know, we're trying to reduce the numbers of suicides. We're trying to look at all the things we can do to stop people getting to that crisis point. And here, David has given us some great examples. You go back to, you know, the the traumas that he's experienced and the lack of proper support really around those trauma and loss experiences. And go back to him starting in advertising and I know exactly what he says when somebody says, oh yeah, it's a young man's game, you know. And you're expecting, it's like a footballer or something, like a professional footballer, you're expected to retire in your mid-30s or, you know, and what happens the rest of your life, you know, all the stress is there and then losing his dad and almost losing his wife and and then, you know, being treated so badly at work. I mean, Basically, the message of hope in all of this, two, two things stand out. One is all those things that could have been done along the way to stop David ever getting into that crisis situation. And, of course, that psychiatrist who just happened to be there, and sadly the system doesn't always make sure this is there. It comes down to sometimes being fortunate with one individual. But that psychiatrist being there, knowing what situation he's in, knowing what would happen in the future, uh, giving him his card uh, and then being there that moment when he, he needed. So, you know, thank goodness for that. But yeah, great insights and a different kind of experience to a lot of other people we've had on the show. And that, again, is an important point. that It's a personal experience. It's a unique experience. Not everybody goes through the same experience. But there are so many things we can all do to prevent people getting that crisis situation. I agree, Paul. And I think actually there will be many parallels potentially with what other people are going through and can see themselves maybe in different circumstances, but have, have been through you know such a similar situation. And final comment really from myself, I think, emphasizing the importance of talking. We hear this so often, but clearly that was a hugely powerful part of David's recovery. And simple things like the business card from the psychiatrist, these messages of, of hope, in this case, wrapped up in a business card that happened yeah. to be in David's wallet. So we can't underestimate the power of yeah. these types of... And sorry, I just have to say as well, Steve, advertising. Come on, it's the communications business. It's designed to help people have conversations about stuff, usually buying stuff. And it's about changing people's behaviour. I mean, get on board, advertising sector, please. Yeah, I'd echo that 100%, Paul. Thank you. Well, look, that's it for another episode of Jordan Space. My thanks to Danny and Paul and uh, to this week's guest, uh, David Eakins. Thank you also for tuning in, as always. I hope you found today's discussion interesting and insightful. And as always, if you felt inspired to support our work to help prevent suicides, you can make a donation on our website, thejordanlegacy.com, or you can get in touch 
by emailing hello at thejordanlegacy.com. You can read much of our content and things we share online via our social media sites by following the Jordan Legacy's CICs LinkedIn company page. We're also on Twitter and Instagram using the username at Jordan Legacy UK. And of course, you can find us on Facebook at The Jordan Legacy. You can listen to this show and previous recordings of other shows on our website by choosing the menu Jordan Space at the top of the homepage. From now, from Danny, Paul and myself, we'd like to wish you a safe, healthy and above all, hopeful rest of your week. And we're going to leave you with one final track chosen by David, which is Groove Armada and Don't Give Up. A big thank you for taking the time out to listen to this podcast from the team at Yawa Radio. Remember to check us out live online, 24 hours a day, seven days a week at yawaradio.co.uk. And if you'd like to join us as a guest on Yawa Radio or as a guest on the Yawa Radio podcast, we would love to hear from you. Simply email studio at yawaradio.co.uk. UK. Once again, a big thank you for taking the time out to listen. This is the Yawa Radio Podcast. Copyright applies. <laughs> <laughs>